Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Westwood One presents The Polsters. The Polsters. And now, Margie and Kristen. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Zoltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we have this extra special treat. We have a great interview in a little bit. Um, but what are our top lines? I know Kristen has some announcements. Well, so before we get to top lines, I have to say farewell to an old friend. Margie, I think you'll agree. OMR, Old Track Market Research, the only focus group facility in D.C., in the District of Columbia, I think. Well, Kellyanne Conway, who I think some folks might have heard of, had, maybe still has, not totally sure, a facility in DuPont Circle that I have also used. But OMR is also... OMR is the one that I have used my entire career. Yeah. Uh, they used to send you if you moderated, they would mail you like a stuffed koala bear with an OMR sweatshirt on. So I like ha- we had like a line of <laughs> OMR bears at our office. The staff there were so nice, and they just sent out an email earlier this week saying that they're closing. They after- did a great job at finding like DC elites, DC insiders. If you want to talk to people who work in policy, work in politics, figure out what they think about. Yep, if you are a Hill LA, not making. A legislative aid, that's what L.A. is. If you were a legislative assistant, if you were making like no money working on the Hill, you could sign up and be in the pool of focus group participants at we OMR. Want you. We would and want we you. would love to talk to you about, about you as an influential 27-year-old <laughs> on Capitol Hill. What yeah. are your thoughts on regulatory thing X and how do you think the Hill would react to this issue? And so you would do focus groups of hashtag this town. Uh, and OMR was where you would do it. And so, I mean, for at least 10 years of my career, I've been going to OMR to do DC elites focus groups so that people can figure out how to craft the ads that they're going to put on the Metro or put in Playbook, which we'll talk about uh, in a second in our interview. But so OMR closing is like a really big deal. And I feel like at some point on the show, we should have a discussion of what makes a really good focus group facility because we that's a piece of the industry that I don't think most people totally get. We talk a lot about the candy, tchotchkes. Yep, yeah, good. Lots, lots of tchotchkes, lots of good uh, candy. I was free and clear from focus group facility M&Ms. They always have M&Ms in the back room. And I had gone like a year and a half without them and I cracked a couple of months ago. I just couldn't do it. 
They were peanut M&Ms, Margie. They were peanut M&Ms. It was, I couldn't mm. resist. Um, so OMR, we are sad to see them go. The other sad change that's happening in the polling world is just today before we started taping, the news came down that Huffington Post has had a sort of extensive series of layoffs, and that is affecting our friends at the Fempire, uh, our friends over at Huffington Post Pollster, who, at least for the meantime, will be unable to uh, update as many of the charts as they have been. I mean, HuffPost Pollster, we always rely on their charts on the show to talk about the president's job approval and things. Um, they are an indispensable resource. And so it's a real shame that uh, this is going to be have to be scaled back significantly. And so to our friends at the HuffPost Vampire, we love you. We're thinking about you. Uh, and we we love the work you do and uh, can't wait to see what you all do next. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And as where Kristen and I got, you know, some of our early starts was at pollster.com en route to Huffington Post. Yeah. Uh, OK. So my my sad but, you know, happy farewell to uh, OMR. You know, it's, they, they sent out this cute email to everybody saying where everybody's going, like, because I guess it's been the same group of people that have run this focus group facility forever. Like Christopher, uh, the guy who would always run the front desk right, there, you right. know, th- they all, you know, saying, OK, this person's going to be semi-retired and spend their time gardening. And this person's finally going to move to go live on the coast. Like it was this really cute Aww. email about how all of the like it's like the band is breaking Aww. up. So it's hard to find a, a, a really excellent focus group facility. But I always, always loved OMR. So we're going to miss them. OK, now on to the top lines. We are still in Wonder Woman mode here around the pollsters. We're going to talk a little bit. Our poll of the week, this will be about Wonder Women, women who take the plunge and run for office. Also, did the pollsters get it right in the UK and Virginia? Evidence is mixed. We'll do a scorecard of how the pollsters fared over the last week. There's a blockbuster new report out from Democracy Fund. I'm a little biased. I was one of the advisors for it. Um, But it's a coalition of friends of the show who have dug into a really robust data set about what the heck happened in the 2016 election. Election, who voted for Trump and why. We'll talk about the different papers that have come out of that. Politico uh, has got a new playbook audio coming out, a new new product that they're uh, talking about. And we've got Anna Palmer from Playbook who's going to stop by and talk to us about how the news media covers polling. Um, with guns back in the news, Margie's firm has some new polling on voter views on gun policy. And it's summer blockbuster season. So we're going to take a look at a poll of the top 100 movies of all time. I think these results, as you will see, make a great case study in recency bias. Yeah, for sure. Okay, but first there was some garbage. Well, whatever. Yeah, some you have to get to the movies. end of the show for <laughs> this rant to fully yes, materialize. Exactly, but. exactly. So um, our poll of the week. So some wonder wonder women. We got lots of wonder women to talk about this week. Um, in addition to Anna Palmer, this uh, work that was done with Politico and Jennifer Lawless from American University, who we have discussed on the show before. She ran for Congress. She, I did her polling. I was lucky enough to do her polling when she ran for Congress uh, a while back in Rhode Island. And she is one of the nation's top experts in studying the decision that women make to run for office and why more women don't run for office and that that gap in just the decision. So it's not simply about, which there's also been a lot of work and, and discussion about when women run, is there bias among voters against women? Her work is focused on that decision. So if there's a gap in ambition to run for office, does that change the outcome? At any rate, 
There's a lot in the study that people should take a look at. The one thing that I found the most surprising and a bummer is the gap. So they asked women and men, were you urged to run for office by a parent, by friends, a teacher, a grandparent, a coach, somebody else? And the biggest gap between men and women and whether or not they were encouraged to run was by their parents. Yeah, this was a, that made me sad. Some work that Jennifer Lawless has done has been trying to figure out what can be done to nudge people to to run. And this study that they did in 2012 of 2100 college students did find that there was this difference in the nudging. And then in this the study that they did in partnership with American and Loyola Marymount. So this one it's interesting. I I'd be curious to know why they focused on just college-educated employed adults. But in this study, they surveyed um, 2,000 college-educated employed adults um, to find out if they'd ever consider running for office. And uh, 40% of Democratic women reported that they'd been engaged, signed a petition about a political issue in the last six months, um, that they were appalled by Donald Trump's victory. But when asked if they would ever consider running for office, only 24% said yes. That number gets even worse when you look at Republican women. Only 20% of Republican women say yes. And the gender divide on the Republican side is huge. You have 20% of Republican women saying they've thought about running for office. That's doubled. 41% of Republican men. So... I work on a lot of issues about how do we get more Republican women running for office and elevated in the party. And like this this type of thing is part of the big challenge. It may be more magnified this cycle. So, you know, this study also shows that women had more likely to sign a some sort of taken some political action in the last six months than they had done before the election, in part because Democratic women are really energized by mobilized because of uh, Trump's victory. Um, that's something that's been we've discussed before. There's been a lot of other anecdotal and qualitative and quantitative data about that. You have, you know, tens of thousands of women who have signed up to run for office through Emily's List and going through training and uh, and that sort of thing. And so this is this is consistent with that. The women who've taken action from, you know, after the marches and so on, uh, that really reflects a national trend. So you see that here, too. Um, but if parents are not are, if parents are encouraging men to run for office more than they're encouraging their daughters, then like there's no group that can fix that. If your parents are more likely to encourage your brother than you, then there's no like training program to, you know, overcome the fact that your parents, you know, were more likely to favor men than women. I mean, that, that to me is staggering. Well, I guess that's a message. Any pre- uh, parents listening to the show, nudge your sons and daughters and daughters yeah, to run for office one day because we need good people. Yeah. And I imagine that the kids of all of our listeners are, I'm sure, very awesome and would make fabulous public servants one day. Yes. All your children should run for office. All of them should. (laughs) All the kids. So we're not going to do our – totally do our usual like the week in Trump stuff because there's a lot of other really interesting stuff going on. Yeah. I mean like we're not going to talk about Trump but we're not going to do like today in Trump X, Y, and Z. Yeah. You'll get that next week. Don't worry. Uh, The big thing – well, although – what we're about to talk about is oodles of Trump. It's just not like what do people think about the thing that he tweeted this morning. It's right. not that kind of Trump stuff. Right. Uh, so I was very fortunate to be involved in a project, um, the Democracy Fund uh, Voter Study Group, um, led by uh, Henry Olson um, from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, he has just written, by the way, a fabulous book about kind of like New Deal Republicans and uh, the Reagan coalition and kind of I, 
if I say big government Republicans, I don't that comes with some implications. But it's a really interesting book about the coalition that enabled Trump to win the Republican nomination, something that Henry's been talking about forever. So alas, he got chosen to lead this group. I was involved. Um, John Sides, who's been on the show, he authored one of the papers that we're going to talk about. Um, Emily Eakins uh, from Cato Institute. She's a friend of the show. Awesome. One of my favorite uh, fellow women on the right who does polling. (laughs) Not a ton of us. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we all got to support one another. Um, and so what this thing is cool. It's yeah, so what what we did was I mean, this was the like one of the longest questionnaires I've ever seen. But yeah, I could tell cuz it's got yeah. there's a lot of we, <laughs> a lot of stuff in here. I don't even understand how we got people to take the survey, but what we did was we worked with YouGov. And YouGov has the very cool capability in that they have had people in their panel for years and years and years. And so they know what people responded when they were asked, say three or four years ago, who did you vote for in the presidential election? Mm. So they know who Romney and Obama voters were. So you're not lo- you're relying on their recall. You're not just relying mm. on them to recall mm. now. Uh, you know what they said. You know what their answers were on a variety of other questions back four years ago. And so you can look at how people have changed over time and get a really good sense, not just of self-reported Obama-Trump flippers or Romney-Clinton flippers, but you can know. These people said four years ago that they voted for Clinton or for Romney. And just as a sidebar, the Obama-Trump voting group is just like a hot – it's a hot, hot subgroup right now. Oh, yeah. That's why I have the the Trump country survey at at Echelon, which is not individuals who are Obama-Trump but counties that were Obama. Anyhow, um, so what they did was we we collected all of this data and then – Four of the people on the committee, again, Emily Eakins, uh, John Sides, I think we've got Lee Drutman, and I'm flipping, I don't want to get the name wrong. Uh, Someone really fantastic. Oh, shoot. Why can't I find it? I'm flipping through my pages. All right. Every, oh, Rui Teixeira. Rui Teixeira. Uh, That's, I'm like, yes. I know this, I know this, I know this. And Robert yep. Griffin from Center for American Progress. Yep. So um, so you had you know Emily from Cato. You had uh, Rui from uh, Center for American Progress. This was a bipartisan, multi- Lots of different viewpoints coming to the table uh, to analyze this data. And so different researchers would take the same data set and focus on different things and come to very different conclusions. Um, so, for instance, Lee Drutman, um, at, uh, he wrote mostly about political divisions and goes through the survey and figures out what are the things that mostly divide the parties. So if you ask people, do you think politics is a rigged game? There's not a big difference between Clinton and Trump supporters. Incredible. Lots of people think politics is a rigged game. Um, There are big gaps, however, on feelings toward Muslims, attitudes on immigration, attitudes on moral issues, attitudes on economic inequality, though you do find that Donald Trump voters are not far, far to the right on whether or not they think that what we should do about economic inequality. Um, There are and, and I think a theme that runs throughout all four of these papers is a questioning of the assumption that Republican voters are as economically conservative as has been suspected. Um, Whenever you put out a study like this, that sort of implies that a lot of Donald Trump's support from the right did not come just from economic anxiety, but also cultural anxiety, social identity, that can be very controversial, right? I mean, it can be spun incorrectly, I think, as saying, well, all Trump voters are racist, which is not what this says, but it, it does not shy away from the fact that race and culture um, played a role in a lot of folks' anxieties who wound up uh, voting for Donald Trump. And in fact, 
it is these questions of national identity that in some ways divided uh, the parties more than the traditional conflicts over economics, according to Lee Drutman's paper. Um, so one of the charts that they have here, and we, we'll try to link to all of this uh, in the show notes, but there's a really great question um, that he looks at or he sort of creates an, an index of, you know, are people conservative or liberal on social and identity questions? Are they liberal or conservative on economic questions? And you find that for most of the Trump voters, there's this cluster around having a pretty conservative social and identity dimension, but having a pretty middle of the road economic dimension. Um, Whereas for the left, it was both or for Clinton voters, it was both very liberal economic and very little social identity. So if you are I mean, I'm looking at the the thing here that is like conservative economics and uh, liberal social identity. And that's like an empty quadrant. (laughs) Right. So those of us who are like, well, I'm fiscally conservative, but I'm socially liberal. Like I hear that a lot. And I'm pretty sure that the only people I hear that from are the only people that feel that way, according to this chart. Like, that is an empty quadrant. It's like a couple dots right here. Um, Yeah. yeah, And they're all – it's where all the other responses exist. So, like, I'm sure these are all your Gary Johnson, your libertarian folks, like – Maybe you're Evan McMullen folks like it, it is a it is a bare quadrant, whereas yeah. there are tons of folks in the liberal economic camps and then a pretty hefty number of Republicans who are conservative economically and conservative on social identity. But so maybe so this would then make sense in the context of where you see polling on things like trade or taxes or some other issues where Republicans and Trump voters are not sort of uniformly conservative that 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 line seems to be moving around a lot i think this would be the scatter plot would be consistent with that yeah well and then so what he does is he goes through and looks at what he calls democratic defectors so people who voted for obama and then flipped to voting for somebody else um and finds that obama trump voters on some measures look an awful lot like obama clinton voters so on economic inequality you see that Obama Trump voters and Obama Clinton voters have very similar views, but then there's a huge gap between where they are and your sort of Republican Republicans, the, right. the Romney Trump people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they're very close. All all four groups are very close on the importance of Social Security and Medicare, attitudes on foreign trade, views that politics is a rigged game. Um, so there are it, it's more these sort of. Uh, Attitudes on immigration, attitudes toward black people and Muslims, perception that people like me are in decline. That's where some of these bigger gaps begin to widen. And that's between lots of other. Right. That's where the gaps open up between the Obama Trump and the Obama Clinton people is Mm -hmm. on those identity things. So then there's uh, the the next paper. um, And I I won't have the time to dig. I won't make you listen to like the rundown on all four papers. I would encourage you to take a look at all of them. They're all really really fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, There was a paper. Uh, it was done by Emily Eakins uh, about trying to do a, t- a typology of the Trump voter. And she she finds that there uh, sort of uses cluster analysis to find five unique clusters of Trump voters. She finds that there are the disengaged, kind of the like the people who just hate everything. Um, they don't know much about politics. Uh, they think elites are bad. But they don't really care that much. Just, right. And that only comprises about 5% of people who are Trump voters mm-hmm. because – most of these people just don't vote. Um, you have the staunch conservatives is the biggest group, but they only make up 31%. They are your 
they're the folks that are in that I am fiscally and socially conservative quadrant, right? They are, they embrace moral traditionalism. They have what she calls a moderately nativist conception of American identity and approach to immigration. So they're not your full-blown, like, stop legal immigration and such, but they're, they probably like the wall, like that kind of thing. They're, right. They're more, they're more traditional, maybe not traditional, but, you know, yeah. conservatives of years past. Uh, she finds another group. The second largest group is the free marketeers. You're 25 percent. These are your small government fiscal conservatives. They're free traders. They have moderate to liberal positions on immigration and race. And to the extent that they were voting for Trump, it wasn't necessarily because they loved Trump. They just really didn't like Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. So this is almost like a New England Republican. Uh, kind of. Yeah, like like a New England Republican may, or, or like a, I would say a Wall Street Journal Republican. Right. right? Like somebody who's. They don't when, – like when Trump tweets things or he says bad things about Mexicans or whatever, you're like, oh, God, Trump, stop it. But you really would love to see the corporate tax rate cut and so you're willing right. to stomach an awful lot to get there. Got it. Uh, American preservationists. This is 20 percent of Trump's coalition. These are folks that are actually economically progressive. They believe the economic and political systems are rigged. They have very nativist immigration views, nativist ethnocultural conception of American identity. So very big on like – this nation used to be a Christian nation. This nation used to – we used to have apple pie and baseball and now all these people come in and I have to push one for English and I don't like that. Um, and then she finds another group that's called the anti-elites and they're they're a little more moderate on immigration um, than the preservationists. But they are also economically progressive and uh, they just wish we had more compromise. If only we would all get together, we could get things done and we need big change and maybe Donald Trump can bring about that big change. He'll do things differently. He'll blow up the system. So it's less about left, right, whether on economics or social issues, but just uh, they just want to see everything get blown up. So, yeah, you've got your, your kind of your heritage foundation types. You've got your Wall Street Journal types. You've got your Breitbart types. <laughs> you've got your... Why can't everybody get along? And also, let's send a wrecking ball to Washington types. And you got the I genuinely just don't care types. Right. I don't and know. that is how she breaks down. I've never down been to any of those sites. Type. Trump's coalition. <laughs> right. Um, so anyhow, that's that's just a, a brief snippet of some of these. I mean, she goes through and looks at uh, attitudes. She creates an index of how much these different groups within the party want people to do, quote, much more about a particular issue, um, finds that, you know, all four of them, she she takes away the 5% that are the disengaged and just looks at the other 95% and finds that the four other groups almost all agree on not wanting us to do much more about combating the effects of climate change, about increasing racial equality. Um, only one group wants to do more, uh, slightly more about reducing poverty. And I think that's the American preservationists, which mm. they're the ones that have the views about like the ethno-national right. views, but they're also very economically progressive. Right, right. Um, and then you get up to things like restricting immigration, and there you have sort of big gaps. Uh, combating terrorism, bigger gaps. Um, reforming the healthcare system, bigger gaps. Uh, so you you wind up finding that the free marketeers, uh, the stuff they love most is reforming healthcare, reforming the national debt, uh, creating jobs. Those are the things that are sort of tops for them. Uh, anyhow, I, I would just suggest everybody take take a look at what Emily's written. Uh, take a look at Roy's. I mean, he, they his goes through and looks really intensively at these uh, Obama to Trump switchers and what motivated them. Um, That's super interesting stuff. I mean, because for folks who are out there trying to study or talk about Trump voters, there's so much of this like 
all Trump voters do this and they all think X. And even if you are drilling down to Obama Trump voters, you're still, you know, there's still a lot more nuance there. And if you are simply painting all of these folks with the same broad brush, you are doing it wrong because there's a lot, there are a lot of different components to what makes up these different Trump voters. And it's, you know, it's a challenge for both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party because there are a whole bunch of different competing, conflicting points of view, different axes that are not you know, necessarily related. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's very, it's interesting stuff. And the stuff will probably move too, as we have different kinds of debates. I mean, it's, it's all super interesting and, and not quite so, um, so blunt as some of the conversations we typically have. Well, let's talk now about, uh, the other big story in polling. I think this week, polling wins and misses. We had elections in the UK. We had elections in Virginia. Or some surprises mixed in there. Let's talk about them. So first we have in the UK, um, again, as we talked about on last week's show, in the UK, I think you only have to have elections every five years. Once you become prime minister, you can hang out as long as your party continues to have faith in you for, I think, five years is the number. But you can also, in a parliamentary system, call an election. If you feel like the wind is at your back and you can pick up some seats, call that election. See if you can make some gains which is what Theresa May thought she was doing when she called a snap election, hoping that it would increase her majority so that she would have uh, some stronger political capital going into the negotiations over Brexit and how the UK would leave the EU, uh, did not work out that way for her. It's possible that she will end up prime minister still at the end of all of this, but she might have to step down within her own party. Some folks, I, I haven't been following this as closely over the last few days because I've been like in the middle of Wyoming and Montana and have been a bit checked out. But I, I believe there are some folks that think, look, if she can't put together a government, then Jeremy Corbyn from the Labor Party would get to. And so let's talk it's about still LGBT. It's it's Thursday, so we're not quite, you know, it could change. It by. could change. Um, but the polls, as we discussed on last week's show, had shown for the most part it showed that, that things were not going so well for May. I mean, yeah. I feel, I mean, obviously some polls were, were, there was some variation across different outlets, but the trend was very clear. The trend was conservatives were getting very strong. And as the election neared, it seemed like the two trend lines were going to cross. It was just a question of when compared to the election. So, um, so it shouldn't, it wasn't a surprise that this did not go as well as May had hoped. So I think that's a polling win. Um, so certainly compared to the previous elections where people seemed surprised in the UK. Right. Um, and so in this case, one of the interesting debates is for the pollsters who got it wrong, in many cases, why they got it wrong was they were pretty aggressively weighting their data to assumptions about turnout as a response to the polling misses from 2015, Yeah, where in these past two elections, they'd underestimated the pro-Brexit or pro-conservative, you know, shy Tory group. They'd assumed too many young people would turn out. And so in response to that, noodled with when i say noodled with i mean you know we're waiting their data and such had turnout models that assumed fewer young voters than maybe wind up turned out and things like that and so it's always the like if you're fighting the last war in polling if you're fixing the mistake you made last election do you wind up making a mistake the opposite direction the next time around and that's what happened to a couple of these pollsters it seems yeah yeah but, but- not all of them you had yougov so jim messina who had been an advisor to barack obama and his campaign 
who crossed the pond and then worked for the Conservative Party in the UK, uh, he was talking some smack on Twitter about YouGov because uh, YouGov's polling showed that things were not going so hot for Theresa May. Uh, that poll was dismissed and wound up being right. Yep. Yep. I mean, it was, you know, it, I think people were surprised a little bit by how tumultuous it was and, and still is. Um, but people were not surprised that it not that it was going it was going, you know, south for May pretty quickly. And, you know, the thing that I thought was interesting, I mean, it, and maybe folks who are UK listeners want to tweet us or just, you know, your thoughts. I mean, it's I mean, we had a, there were a variety of terror attacks in the run up to the election. And I don't know if that necessarily, you know, it doesn't seem like that was necessarily an influencing event on the election that the trend line was happening before those, those attacks and didn't have an effect on the, on the outcome. And also what was the effect of Brexit or thoughts about Brexit? Did that influence how people were voting? And I mean, my take, at least from the little I've seen and, and, and heard from folks is, you know, ultimately this was about the May campaign and what they thought the different parties were offering, uh, offering voters, not necessarily a response to, you know, these other events. So shortly after Election Day, we got an email from friend of the show, Mark Blumenthal, the godfather of what used to be pollster.com. That's right. Became Huffington Post pollster. That's right. We talked about that earlier in the show. Yep. Um, he, uh, he emailed us to say, hey, just FYI. Survey Monkey, we did pretty great. Uh, the the last poll that I see, they had surveyed eleven thousand eight hundred and fifty three likely voters, uh, and had conservatives winning by four. Which is again, I think in the end they wound up winning by yeah two point four. So that's pretty that's pretty darn close. I think this we call this a polling win. I think we do call this a polling win. I think, and again, it's the people who were surprised should not have been surprised if they were really looking. At the polls. And there were enough polls telling enough different stories that no one should have been certain, certain, certain that this was going to be a great night for Theresa May. Yeah. Not I, if you were looking at all the data you were. I was at the the party at the embassy on election night, on UK election night. and oh, fancy. It was pretty fun, I have to say. It was pretty fun. And um, there were lots of people there. They had TVs everywhere. And people did not seem, like, completely shocked by the results. Well, there is some polling shock happening here stateside. Yes. And that is in the Republican primary in Virginia. So in uh, so Virginia and New Jersey are the two states. Are they the only two there states? There are other states, but they're not this year. So Louisiana and Kentucky have odd year elections, but they were not up this time around. Not this time around. OK. Uh, so, the, yeah, they're always because I, I remember four years ago, it was like Christie versus think Cuccinelli. It was like two different ways Republicans can go. Right. And now, can, by the way, Chris Christie is, has the lowest approval rating in recorded history of any governor in New so Jersey. That, that's not a column that aged well. No. But I also definitely did not call that he'd be like the first governor endorsing Trump's or second or whatever it was. So right. sometimes I get him right. Sometimes okay. I get him wrong. I mean, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Um but in the Republican primary, so you have uh, – this is the first time, by the way, that Republicans are having a primary, or at least the first time in a while. I, I, prior to this, it had been uh, Republicans would have a um, – Convention. A convention. Sorry, I don't know why that word was escaping. A convention to decide their nominee. And this would typically lead to candidates from the pretty far right that would sometimes have a trouble getting nominated or winning the general. Now, with Bob McDonnell, it wasn't a problem. 
his story did not have a happy ending. Until it was, yes. it, But, you know, he he ran a great campaign and and all of that. Um, so in this camp, in this election, you had a lot of polls. So you had Washington Post, George Mason showing Gillespie up by 20 in mid-May uh, with 24 percent undecided. Uh, it's not listed here, but there was a poll that was released by uh, – some friends of mine uh, at, at Image, which is a Republican uh, consulting firm, um, they had worked with a pollster and released numbers showing Gillespie up by, I believe, either 12 or 14. And how far out were these polls? I mean, because this is the so thing. The, the, the Image one was pretty close okay. to Election Day, but it wound up showing like 30 or 40 some percent undecided, which when I saw those numbers, my frustration was like, if you have a poll really close to Election Day and 40 percent are undecided. You're talking to a lot of people who aren't going to vote. Right. Um, and you have – and I mean it's an odd – look, this is a – I mean people in Virginia are used to having elections in for governor in odd years. So it's not like this is just sprung on them that this is happening. I mean even if the Republicans have had a convention before, they still – voters know that there is a – that there's an election in an odd year. That said, the Virginia case, which we all want to look to as a bellwether, is unusual. Having an odd year election means strange things for turnout. Um, and having strange things for turnout makes polling in that race really hard. If you have these, a lot of these polls that were weeks out of the election day and with massive numbers undecided, I mean, it, it could literally go anyway. It's hard to really look at these polls and say, well, you know, this poll that you had a month out that showed 30, 40% undecided, why was it wrong? I mean, yeah. It's not, it wasn't wrong. I, I don't hold any of these. Folks on this sheet that we're looking at responsible because these are all old polls, but there were a lot of newer polls um, that aren't listed on here, but that showed Maybe they didn't meet the Huffington Post. Yeah, but that showed. Thing. So, for instance, there was a pollster called Change Research, which like I'd never heard of before. I don't know who they are, who they're affiliated with, but they got this almost exactly mm. right. And apparently they almost got the Montana race, the Montana special exactly right. So. One of this is the challenge, right? Like, if you've never heard of a firm, do you trust their polls? On the other hand, now this whoever change researches, they have two of these really tough races that they have called pretty close. Um, they were the only ones suggesting that Stewart, Corey Stewart, could get anywhere close to Ed Gillespie. And for those who are unfamiliar with Virginia politics, so Ed Gillespie um, used to be the chair of the Republican Party nationally, RNC chair. I think during the Bush administration. Um, Terry McAuliffe, who's the current governor of Virginia, had been DNC chair during, I think, the Clinton era. And only Virginia would have such a thing. Right. And so Gillespie has made the case. Because you have so many D.C. political guy. I'm a loyal Republican. Corey Stewart, he was a very sort of Trump world. I think he actually got fired from the Trump campaign for being I don't want to say too Trumpy. That's not the right. But like his his closing message was about like protecting Confederate monuments. Yeah. In Virginia. Like, okay. Okay, that was his message. And he, right. He, he used the Kathy Griffin image on TV. I mean, he was like really, really far. Yeah. So is this a wake-up call to establishment Republicans that like the party is firmly in the control of like folks that get I mean, real I stirred up about? I saw he might run for Senate. I, I saw a tweet that he might run for Senate. I don't know right. if that's true. Um, or is this just, look, Virginia Republicans are not used to voting in a primary so the only people that turned out were the people that would have normally gone to a convention anyways. And like how much of a warning sign is this for Virginia Republicans? 
Or does it mean that um, voters aren't excited about Ed Gillespie? Right. And does it mean that, okay, how will he do in the general? And I think that's a fair question. So what happened on the Democratic side? On the Democratic side, the conventional wisdom in the polls showed, you know, kind of neck and neck between Perriello and Northam. But then Northam won pretty decisively over Perriello. Um, If you didn't have any polling and you were going to look at this, you would say, well, Northam, he's, you know, he's been voted on across the state state already. So, you know, so it makes sense that he would have that advantage because people everywhere would have voted for him while Perriello was a a member of Congress and then was a, you know, D.C. influencer um, and, you know, worked in D.C. after that. Um, This was seen, this was kind of pitched as a proxy battle between Clinton and Sanders people. I I don't really see it that way. Um, So I I wouldn't look to the results and say, well, this means, you know, Clinton's victorious over Sanders people. Like, I I just don't I just don't think of it that way. Perriello was more moderate when he represented the Charlottesville area, reflecting the constituents in his district. I mean, I just think they're, they're, you know, there are a variety. There are a variety of ways. I think they were both progressive on a lot of issues. So um, that said, I think the polling suggested that they were tied to each other and each faring similarly against Gillespie. So we'll see how this shakes out. I think, you know, they're they're both strong candidates. I think the strong, you know, the wake up call, I think, for Republicans, regardless of, you know, Stewart doing well, is that more Democrats voted in the primary than Republicans. And maybe that's because of the differences in how these Mm -hmm. races are, you know, these elections are being done. Or maybe it goes back to this Democratic enthusiasm thing. We just don't know yet. Um, Or here's my tinfoil hat conspiracy theory that I've almost I have actually no data to support this at all. But my colleague Patrick tweeted about this yesterday. Because Virginia doesn't have party registration, how many were like crossovers, right? Like during the Republican primary for president, some Democrats turning out in Virginia saying like, look, the Democratic nomination sealed up, but maybe we can stop Donald Trump here. Um, Like one of my colleagues, he is a Republican in Virginia, but sort of thought that Gillespie like, oh, well, the polls all show Gillespie's probably got this. And so I believe. Do you think the Democrats would say voted in the Democratic primary? Despite being a Republican, because you don't have to register. In but why Virginia would Republicans want to vote? Why would Republicans want to vote in the Democratic primary to stop I, the Bernie people from taking it? Or maybe I mean, take I would I don't feel know if, if you had like gonna, an Operation Chaos vibe. If you were going to do not. a conspiracy theory, you would have de- <laughs> Democrats saying, "Oh, I'm voting for Corey Stewart. I'm okay with whoever comes out of right, the Democratic right, right. primary. I'm going to vote for Corey." Like Stewart. I said, I have no actual data to support. This not besides. only would he be on the ballot in Virginia, he'd be on the ballot all over the country because he'd be like, "What is happening to the Republican Party?" There, you know, here we have Corey Stewart. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's the it, it, it's you know, is very enthusiasm is is a more likely. Yeah, I think that's this, a more likely. It's more likely. <laughs> that people were like, you know, uh, people who were excited about con- Confederate monuments turned out to vote. And people who are excited about RNC chairs did not, I guess, is the bottom line. But, um, I, you know, from my party tours, I think you guys dodged a bullet there by not having Corey. St- I don't think he would have been. I don't know if Ed Gillespie necessarily sets the world on fire, but I think Corey Stewart would have been, I think, problematic in terms of the broader narrative that Republicans may be, I'm assuming, try to shift away from. There are a lot of Republican Party leaders who are breathing a sigh of relief that Gillespie squeaked it out. Yes. Well, we've now got an interview uh, guest here that we want to talk to. Uh, so let's let's get to it. Let's bring her in. Anna Palmer from Politico. So we're very excited to have 
Anna Palmer here in our lovely studio, or maybe multi-use facility, maybe is another good phrase for it. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit. You are one of the writers of Playbook, which is like a must-read for Washington. But for folks who are not must-read Washington folks of all of our thousands of listeners, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So what I always like to say is Playbook is kind of the 30,000-foot guide to Washington every day before the people that go on TV, before you go into your 8 o'clock meeting. But while it is definitely for that audience, if my mom in North Dakota wants to read it and come along for the ride and, you know, kind of learn about the personalities, the people, what's happening, uh, we welcome those people uh, to join us. Yeah, I feel like for me, I, I always think of playbook. It's like the recap of a TV show. Like it's the recap, but also the like so what will happen on next week's episode. But it's every single day. So tell us a little bit. You're beginning this audio portion for playbook. What can people expect from playbook in audio? Yeah, so it's basically every morning at the same time that Playbook, uh, the newsletter comes out, we have a link and it's on iTunes. You can subscribe to it. It's basically about four and a half minutes or so of the top headlines. So it's kind of what you need to know, Jake and my take for the day, uh, kind of the smart things that you can say around the water cooler while you get your Starbucks coffee with your colleagues. So, okay, so tell us, so it comes out very early in the morning at 6 a.m. Often, I'm a, I have young children. I'm awake when I'm, and then the tip sheets all start coming in at 6. How late, how late do, are you working on or how early do you need to wake up in order to get it out at 6 a.m.? This I'm desperate to know this. <laughs> this is the, every interview we do, this is the question we always get, <laughs> no matter what. Uh, so I would say... We do a little bit of it before the night. And Jake and I really, when we took this on, we were longtime reporters in Washington on the Hill. I covered K Street for a long time, lobbying. And so we try to have a reported, it's not just an aggregation of the news, kind of a take and kind of what's going to happen, set the dialogue for the day. And so I get up a little bit earlier than most of them. Uh, so a little bit before four, always. And we kind of start working on things really in earnest around four. And we have this uh, guy, Daniel Lippman, who's been associated with the product for a long time. And he does a lot of the overnight in terms of kind of the headlines and the aggregation stuff. So do you feel like it's having a newborn who never gets older and like forces you to make good life choices in the evening? It's actually, it's really funny. I describe it as, because so many of my friends have kids right now. I'm like, man, this is just like exactly having a little kid, but it never, it just, you always have to get up at the same time. They don't sleep any longer. And we started, uh, since we've taken it over almost a year to date, we also have an afternoon playbook now that comes out. We call it Power Briefing, which comes out between one and two because it's just such a crazy news cycle. Uh, what was news at 6 a.m. and what's news at 1 p.m. It's a whole different news cycle. So tell us a little bit, because this is a show about polling. Um, you've been a reporter for a while. I know Politico now has this polling partnership with Morning Consult. We talk about that data all the time on the show. How have you seen reporting on polling and the consumption of polling change in your time as a reporter? I think it's changed a lot. Uh, it, it definitely. So, yeah. So almost a year ago, we started this partnership with Morning Consult. And part of our idea, we really uh, – 
playbook is a very central part of that partnership, is that we wanted to have things that went beyond uh, just the horse race. There's people that have been doing horse race polling forever. And we've thought like two, two basic premises of that partnership is one, we wanted to be able to do things that were on the news in Washington, the bills that were going through, topics that were coming up. But then two, kind of punch a little bit of a hole and kind of we get this inside the beltway talk of like what things matter and what people care about. And just to kind of test that case, like do people People really care about the Republican agenda. They even know what it is. You know, do people know who and we did a great one about we tested the popularity of and, and kind of name recognition of uh, aides in the White House. And for a White House that really cares about where they not only the principal is in terms of the news, but where they're actually they're standing within the, their own kind of competition as staffers. It's been very fun because it kind of creates a real news cycle dialogue around it. So I understand that by asking this question, it's akin to walking into Google and asking, like, how does your algorithm work? Like, tell me what would make me first in Google. But a lot of times, and I'm sure Margie experiences this too, we will have clients that will do polls. Most polls never see the light of day. They're internal. They're just for strategic purposes. But every so often, we'll have a client that wants their poll public because they like the results. They think it's great. There's only so much real estate, though, in Playbook. How do you all make determinations about what types of polls your readers will want to hear about and how those get featured? So Jake and I actually talked about this today because I knew this was going to come up. And I was like, I need a, I need a smart answer. Um, not just like I'm the one I saw because I'm not too tired in the morning. Here's the answer. If the pollsters' polls will always be in Playboy. Uh, True so, or false? So I would say I think a couple of things. One, uh, one of the things that Playbook in general strives towards exclusivity. So if you give us the poll first, we are much more likely to publish it because we want to have things that people have to click on Playbook because they know they're going to get something new that's not in the post and the journal and everywhere else. Um, two, I think sample size matters. I think kind of what topics matter. Uh, I know that's not very, that's kind of general, but not as specific. And I, I would say we have a, a little bit of a bias against doing like corporation sponsored polling. Uh, I think that's something that we just we've really kind of aired unless it's something that's like very specific to to an issue area or something like a I think we did some around like the labor sector getting con- confirmation and things like that uh, but just in general I think we were kind of a little hesitant on that yeah and, and I th- think that's understandable I mean a lot of times we'll get clients that are you know the American whatever association and they've done a poll that you know it's legitimately done and it finds that tons of people support them on their issue group does poll that shows people care about groups issue um, so you you know you've got to make that determination, okay, is this like a a duh kind of moment or is this a legitimate piece of research that sheds new light on an issue in a way people might not have thought of before? And so I will certainly say that I sometimes will get pushes from clients, like, let's think of what a newsworthy question is. Let's think of something that would be, like, catchy enough that a reporter would go, like, yes, I do want to write about that, that that is now something that clients will ask for. Um, And then as the pollster, you've got to, you know, push back and be like, well, we need to make sure that this question is actually adding value and being it's not just like a push poll or a my right. favorite play, troll poll question. <laughs> right. Or getting like 90 percent of people to say, you know, I mean, there are some things that are 90 percent things, but most things are not. So just like trying to have a question as a 90 percent thing does not make it more endearing to the press typically. Um, so tell us a little bit about the re- relationship you have with your readers like podcasting. Tip sheets <laughs> are kind of an intimate medium. I mean, have you found that more than a, just a regular story or more than a regular, you know, radio or TV hit? Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So I it's something that I was not 
prepared for, frankly. Um, I had no idea how closely people f- uh, feel about Playbook in particular, I think, <laughs> yeah. because it's a product that they've been waking up to for 10 years uh, before we took it over. And so I think it's roll over and read is the big thing that people tell us they do. So they're like, they're in their pajamas, they're having their coffee. You know, it's more conversational. It's also, there are some, you know, we have kind of thoughts and opinions uh, about things. So it's much different than just a straight news story, X happened in Congress, this is what it means. And and, and I would say the other thing, the real value add um, that I've grown to appreciate is we have much more of a community aspect. So the bottom section of Playbook is a section we call Playbookers, which is basically spotteds, birthdays, you know, kind of more of the social, you know, page six of Washington flair. And people are very uh, engaged in that <laughs> in a lot of ways. We have a birthday of the day. It's actually like one of the most popular features. I think you were recently featured. Was I? Oh, gosh. Well, it's I, my I, anniversary I, coming up. I'll make sure to send I think, you. I, I think there was one year when my birthday was like the bold birthday at the beginning of Paragraph. And like people noted, like they would email me like, your birthday was in bold. And I'm like, oh, my God. Really? Really? I mean, thank you. But that doesn't mean my birthday is any more special than anybody else's. I don't think I was bold this last year, though. What's I'm slipping. The, I'm slipping. What's the craziest thing somebody has done that you can share to get in or playbook <laughs> or to, <laughs> to say they've been doing to in order to get into playbook. Yeah, so I actually think that's the funniest part. So sometimes spotted, which you know we have a, a section in the top which we call like the juice, which is kind of, you know, the bold faces and different things in terms of fundraising and other things. What I'm always I'm always fascinated by a lot of the spotted are people seeing somebody. I'm on a plane, I saw an right. ex member going somewhere. But then you see the ones that are like the people who are at Trump Hotel and like spotted at dinner, like them and their colleagues, and they all <laughs> want to get in there. So maybe that's not as shocking, but to me, I always, it's just so Washington. There is a, there, the moment for me that Veep on HBO became too real is there's a scene I don't know if it's a first or second season but where the Dan character goes to like a Pilates studio because he's trying to stalk down was it Kent it was somebody he's trying to stalk down some White House staffer and then he winds up there's some other guy at the studio he's like hey read about your thing in playbook the other day and I was like oh that is a sentence that has come out of my mouth before and now it's on me oh this is not good I need to reevaluate my life choices like oh. spotted me <laughs> At the bodega buying, you know, a <laughs> bottle of wine. Like, I mean, I can just yeah, – it's just kind of funny to think of people. I mean, you must get have to sort through, like, millions of those every day. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of that. And it's also just like, wait, what is newsworthy? What's not? What's true, right? Because sometimes, obviously, we have great tipsters who are always trying to be uh, accurate. But sometimes they – you know, their eyes might – they might think they see someone that they actually don't, which is always, you know, the unfortunate uh, <laughs> unfortunate thing when someone's like, no, I was – at home with my kids. I was not having dinner at, you know, XYZ restaurant. <laughs> never never a good moment. <laughs> That's funny. That's like when just, I thought I saw... got busted. Right, <laughs> right. There was a time I thought I saw Colin Firth on a plane and I spent like the whole plane ride like strategizing of like what my game plan was going to be and then I'm like, you know, I just don't think it's him. I think I should just not, <laughs> not a dress, not a costume. Um, well, thank you so much. How can people find Playbook, find you... Be yes. part of the community, so et cetera. Yes. Uh, to su- subscribe to Playbook, it's uh, playbook.com slash – or politico.com slash playbook. Uh, there's a very easy button to do that. You can subscribe to uh, the – uh, our our website and all everything's right there. And then my Twitter handle is apalmerdc. So follow us. We, uh, we'd love to have you join in the conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.
I'm so glad we got Anna in here. That was uh, that was awesome. I always like, even though we don't do our interview only standalone episodes anymore because it was an unsustainable pace of podcasting. <laughs> it is nice to occasionally get some, get a get friends of the show into chat. And it was really nice that she came to our humble abode here to do it in person, which makes it always a little bit more fun. So we re- very appreciative. She is a Wonder Woman too, and you should all follow her. So next we have uh, a poll that we did here uh, at PSB with the group Guns Down. And so this is a poll we did in May, and it was in in part to explore views toward stronger gun laws around the time of the one-year anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. That anniversary was on Monday. Um, we did this poll in May, and we've been uh, and it was covered in uh, Mike, uh, the online outlet. Mike, um, of course, since then there have been two other tragedies, two other gun tragedies this week. Uh, yesterday in Virginia, uh, at uh, uh, baseball practice of the congressional baseball team, the Republican team, and Steve Scalise who's still in the hospital, and some uh, staffers. Um, And also there was a shooting in San Francisco, uh, I think at a UPS location or UPS workers in San Francisco, plus, of course, hundreds of people who are victims of gun violence every day. Um, We did some polling that is consistent with other polls that we have done or that I've talked about about guns in the past showing support for stronger gun laws as opposed to less strong or weaker gun laws and even more support for a variety of specific gun laws. And it's not just things like background checks, which I think a lot of folks have seen the polling showing 90 percent of people support universal background checks. But we tested 16 different proposals and 15 of them had majority support. And most, but not all, but most of them had majority support among folks who are in households where uh, someone owns a gun. So not just things like background checks, things like banning uh, military-style assault weapons, banning high-capacity ammunitions, things like uh, banning open carrying or, or uh, concealing carry, lifting state gun gag uh, laws that prevent doctors from asking patients about guns at home, um, requiring uh, people to demonstrate a distinct need before being able to buy a gun. I mean, a variety of you know, things like buyback programs, registries, things that you may think if you read the coverage of the gun debate are controversial or actually supported by a majority of Americans. Yeah, it was interesting to me that the the thread seemed to be that even for folks who are in gun households, that many of the proposals that involve things that don't prevent you from getting a gun but require you to register it or go through a background check or things like that or say there are certain types of guns that they tend to be fine with that. It's, It's those sort of bottom three proposals on the list where you're talking about amending the Second Amendment. Um saying that you can only buy a gun if you prove that you need to be able to have a gun or banning private ownership altogether. Those are where the support really falls off. So it's – Right. With gun it, with gun owners. Right. With gun owners. Right. With gun owners. Um, and those are also – I mean banning private ownership of handguns even overall was only 33 percent. But a lot of these things, if you're not saying that someone can't have a gun, you're just saying you have to register it. You can't have this type of gun, et cetera. Even in gun households, they seem to be fine with it. That was that to me was like the the dividing line between majority and 
less than a third support right among and, the gun owning households yeah so uh, it also reflects this broader sense that and this is true across the board that people not not just want stronger gun laws they want fewer guns rather than more and they want guns harder to get rather than easier to get and so that's what i think that that's what's driving a lot of the a lot of the support here for all these specific proposals because they in fact make guns harder to get and, and fewer rather than more um we also found that a majority felt that they weren't they felt they would feel less safe if more people were carrying guns in public at places like grocery stores and so on so um so folks should check it out. I think the other important point here is there was a lot of democratic enthusiasm and unity behind a variety of these proposals. And that's again is reflected in a lot of the overall polling that we've seen. And I think I don't know if we spoke about this point when it came out, but there was a Pew study from a month or two ago, and they asked which party would do a better job on a variety of issues, you know, taxes, terrorism, health care, and they had guns. And there used to be a much wider Republican advantage uh, on guns, and now it's like a single-digit, much smaller advantage on guns. So that's one of the issues where Republicans have really lost ground relative to Democrats. It's not the only one, but it's one of them. And I think this poll reflects that, that there, you know, when you ask about the specifics, specifically, you see a lot of folks, not just Democrats saying, yeah, we support them. Well, let's close out then on the, uh, our, we always end the show on something light. Uh, This week, so we talked a lot about movies last week, because Wonder Woman had, you know, taken over. Yes. Taken over. That's right. Uh, So, uh, so why not continue the movie thing? Is this a magazine called Empire? Yeah. So some, it's not the show Empire, which is also awesome. I was going to say, I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, so <laughs> the magazine Empire asked nearly 5,000 film fans to vote for their best loved movies. Uh, now, first of all, the spelling of favorites here has the U. So this flags for me. This is may, perhaps not a U.S. poll. Mm. I'd be interested to know geographically where their sample yeah. is from. But the they other... don't see a lot of UK. These are still well, like... So the, the thing that caught me f- first is that they call the Avengers movie Avengers Assemble, which is what it was called internationally, but ah. not here in the US. Oh, see, I don't know when any so, of those yeah, are. So yeah, this is like a, like a weird, you know, minor nerd... nerd Nerd alert. Of, nerd alert. Nerd alert. Um, <laughs> but so what they did was they asked these 5,000 film fans to say what their favorite movies were. And they've revealed what they call the definitive list of the 100 greatest movies. Number one, The Godfather. Number two, Empire Strikes Back. Three, The Dark Knight. Four, Shawshank Redemption. Five, Pulp Fiction. Six, Goodfellas. A lot of these are just movies of dudes being violent. Right. Uh, <laughs> that is reducing a lot of really excellent film down to one sentence, but I'm like, hmm, this is a theme I'm picking up. Seven Raiders of the Lost Ark, eight Jaws, nine Star Wars, ten Lord of the Rings. Here's where some things start to fall apart for me. Classic movies like Jurassic Park is 19 on the list. La La Land is 62 on the list. I love me some La La Land, but that puts it above Titanic, which is at 97. Hmm. Don't you dare tell me that La La Land is better than Titanic. I haven't seen La La Land. I think I would enjoy it. Titanic, I don't know. Okay. Arrival at 97. Yeah, Arrival. I liked Arrival. It was great. It's not a top 100. There are not 14-year-old girls putting Arrival posters in their bedrooms, like I may or may not have done in 1998 <laughs> whatever anyways I, I mean yeah it's it was interstellar just fine. at 47 okay mad max fury road at at 38 I, I liked mad max fury road i thought it was awesome um but the idea that like i think i'm just hung up on the titanic thing 
the fact that it's 97 and, and you have at 45 i mean guardians of the bu- galaxy at yeah. 34 this list is bunk so I, this is and it even says in here a lot of newer movies placed as well this is recency bias people yes. this is or this is when when somebody says like what's your favorite band your response is influenced by whether or not you heard that band on the radio this morning or like what was the last band concert you went to. I have like four or five different answers if somebody said, who's your favorite band that I could give? And unconsciously, that's going to be influenced by like, did I have a mute math song come up on Spotify this morning or not? And so this is recency bias at work. You cannot tell me that Guardians of the Galaxy is the 34th best movie movie ever made. (laughs) Period. No, I agree with you. I, like, we, it is not Casablanca. No, I agree with you. I love Chris Pratt. He's great. The Chris It's not that good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, look, I agree with you. I think, I mean, that's the problem with these movie lists, too, is that, you know, either people are just coming up with a bunch of movie, you know, classic movies that they actually haven't seen that they think they should say that they are the best movie, or it's a bunch of, like, blockbusters from the last 10 years. That's the problem. Now, we just got an email about how many people use GIFs. <laughs> oh, are you like, did we get a pitch? <laughs> yeah, we got a pitch. We got an on-topic pitch for once. I know. <gasps> On topic pitch alert. Like, oh my like gosh. Siren. 63% of Americans are GIF users and 20% can't get enough of them. <laughs> that seems a little high. But hey, can I? The, am I in the 28% yet? that can't get enough of I them? Probably. <laughs> have we ever seen polling on whether it's pronounced GIF or JIF? I don't know. Let's see. I'll have to scroll down. I think I've switched to the in my lifetime. This. I think I used to be GIF and then I became JIF. I don't know. I'll just take a cue. Just to, someone tell me what to do and you I'll know, do it. You know, we got a pitch earlier this week. I don't – maybe I just got it. Maybe they flagged me for video games or something about like a new console that's coming out that will have all of these classic Sega games on it. Oh, yeah. And no, that I was the first that. time I have ever responded back. So I'm going to be like, <laughs> wait, yes, PR person, can you tell me more about this? Can uh, you maybe send one to my house? Oh, I can did we, respond. Uh... I, I got a pitch for like, we, you know, we have like a Elizabeth Warren, she persisted doll. And I wrote back, I'm like, uh, yes. Please, I would like. I might tweet it if you send it to me. I don't think I got pitched that. <laughs> I know they did not uh, send me one. Although, <laughs> I'm going to get one. I'm going to leave it on Patrick's desk at Echelon. <laughs> He's going to come in and have a sheep persisted doll. <laughs> this is so funny. That's like a little. It's a little one. Sixty-three percent of Americans use gifts. Forty-three percent say they use them sometimes. Twenty percent use them all the time. For, what's all the time? Fourteen percent say they've never used one. Twenty-three percent don't know what a gif is. <laughs> I, I think the only person I know who uses gifts all the time is at Senator Shoshana Shoshana Weissman, who does a lot of social media yeah, stuff on the right. Funny. She's very funny. And if I had to define what does it mean to use gifts all the time. GIFs all the time. It would be her. Um, 70% of those who don't create GIFs would like to try. Of Americans who've never created GIFs, 47% are interested but don't know how. 23% didn't know they could create their own GIFs. So there's like a definite like, I have no idea what you're talking about group. That seems to be like about a quarter. Anyway, thank you, person who sent us relevant (laughs) pitch. We always like to reward relevant pitches. That's excellent. All right, Margie, what did we learn this week? So, folks, tell a young gal in your life she should run for office. Do it today. Trump voters, they don't all look alike. And every time you think your schedule is crazy, take a moment to appreciate Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman. And it's always an appropriate time to discuss gun polling and public opinion suggests it's not divisive. Mad Max and Arrival, seriously, people, don't really... 
I'm with Kristen. Not sure about that Mad list. Max is like the least objectionable thing about that list, though. Yeah. I'm still thinking about it. You can find us on Twitter at, at The Pollsters, individually at, at Margie O'Mero and at Casel DeSanderson. On Facebook, we post links to the stories we find interesting throughout the week. And you can find us at www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye. A Westwood One podcast production.